So how can God be just in justifying the ungodly? It's because his son died to pay for my sin and for the sins of the whole world. He was God so he could pay for every man's sin, and he was man so that he could pay for man's sin. Thank you for tuning in to the Removing Barriers podcast. I'm Jay. And I'm MCG. And we're attempting to remove barriers so we can all have a clear view of the cross. This is episode 22 of the Removing Barriers podcast. And this is the first in the series of sin and personal responsibility. In this episode, we will be defining sin and personal responsibility. Co-hosting with us is DW. DW, welcome. Thanks. Good to be here. In this first segment, we will be looking at defining sin and personal responsibility, talking a bit about shortcomings and what makes a person a sinner. Let's start with what is sin? Well, when considering this, I was thinking about or I thought about a book from Ken Ham entitled, Why Won't They Listen? And he in the book is arguing for creation evangelism. But he has a short discussion in that book between him and a young lady. And in this conversation, he asks her about, you know, what sin is. She makes the assertion that Genesis isn't essential. Christ did on the cross is all that's essential to Christianity. And he responds and says, why did Jesus die on the cross? She answers for sin. And then he asks her what she means by sin. She says rebellion. Then he asks her, "Uh, could you please tell me how you came up with that to define sin as rebellion? And where did you get that definition? And anyway, in his explanation there, he goes on to explain that his sister in Christ, you know, had difficulty explaining sin, where it came from and so forth without going back to Genesis. And so I think the argument there is interesting because he points out the, you know, biblical authority that the Bible is really the answer for what sin is. My family and I were out in a village not too far from our home recently, and we were doing some evangelism. And we were hanging things on doors when we didn't meet people and talk to them and so forth. Somebody came by later and took one of the door hangers, wrote some things on it, and put it on our window. And one of the things they said is, you know, real nice that you would call people sinners. I wish they had stayed around because I would have loved to have talked to them, not to argue or anything like that, but to try and point out that it's not me that's calling men, uh, women, sinners, it's the Bible. And so when we ask the question, what is sin, it really is best to say, you know, how does the Bible define sin? So while that young lady mentioned that rebellion, you know, was her definition of sin, I thought of 1 John 3, 4, whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And, you know, rather than just prattle on, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so when I think of sin, of course, First John chapter 3 and verse 4, as well as you quoted, sin is the transgression of the law. But in order to get a full understanding of sin, I do think you have to go back to Genesis, mm-hmm. to the foundation that God told us not to do something, and we did. Mm-hmm. And because of that, we sin. So if I should put it in my own definition, sin is basically disobedience to God's law or God's command. Mm-hmm. And to encapsulate that, what is sin? Well, the first man, Adam, sinned, disobeyed God's law, and then I, MCG, disobeyed God's law, so I sin. So I think you have to look at it holistically because a lot of folks sometimes think, okay, sin is when Adam disobeyed, but they don't look at the fact that they too have disobeyed. So to that point, why was it so bad that you know Adam sinned or that Adam 
disobeyed God? Or how does that define what sin is? One thing I was going to say is that sin is transgression of the law, mm-hmm. but we can't understand sin or the law for that matter without considering the lawgiver. So the nature of God and all of who he is is both what makes sin so sinful. The holiness of God is what defines sin because sin is contrary to that. It's contradictory to that. It's everything God is not. And so in order for us to understand that, we need to understand the nature of God, the holiness of God, what he's revealed in scripture as who he is. And that's why when Adam disobeyed in the garden, the only way I could explain is that sin is so exceedingly sinful because of the holiness of God. Am I making sense? Sure. What I'm driving at in this question, though, in the simplest of terms, what is sin? You know, we can get on to then why sin is so bad after we define what sin is, but we've talked there in First John 3 about sin is the transgression of law. That's a, a pretty succinct statement. So, and transgression, the definition of the word transgression is to step over a line. So, you know, when you trespass or transgress onto somebody's property without their permission, you're just crossing the barrier, the boundary line. And the line for us is God's law. And, you know, sin is stepping over that line. You know, I was thinking about James 2.10 and 11, where it says, Whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. I thought about the fact that in the Old Testament it says, some people say there's like 613 commandments. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, combined, there's 613 laws. Part of them are commandments, thou shalt. Part of them are prohibitions, thou shalt not. You know, people are obviously familiar with the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, thou shalt have no other gods before him, and thou shalt not make a graven image, and thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, and so forth. People are familiar with the Ten Commandments. And Jesus boiled that down to two, and he said, you know, on these two hang all the law and the prophets. And anyway, as I boiled this all down and looked at it, I really came up actually with just one commandment, and that's to obey God. In Ecclesiastes 12:13, Solomon says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So sin, and the way that I'm looking at it, just in a very simple way, is the reason Adam's sin was so bad was because God said don't, and Adam did, and that was sin. And so just in a basic definition, you know, sin is not obeying God. So if that's what the Bible says is sin, then there's biblical authority, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And I would just put it this way, that sin is anything we do, think, or say that violates God's command, as you said. And of course, we have sin of omission. God said, do and we don't. And sin of commission, God said, don't and we do. Yeah, kind of exactly. So, yeah, definitely. Yep. And even going back to what Jay was saying, when you consider the holiness of God, you will see how exceedingly sinful sin is. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Yeah, I agree with her point on the sinfulness of sin, you know, very much so. Right. I just didn't want to lose, you know, trying to get to a simple definition of sin and, you know, going to the sinfulness of, or the, yeah, the sinfulness of sin. <laughs> right. Let's compare and contrast shortcomings. So what are shortcomings? Are they the same thing as sins? I'd say so. If we define sin as God says do and we don't, God says don't and we do, 
a shortcoming is basically a failure to reach that standard. And so that is sin. I'd like to delineate and express that what we would call mistakes, oopsies, the world makes a gradation between different kinds of sin. Yeah, like um, little white lies exactly. versus you know, terrible lies. Right. When it comes to what sin is before the Lord, it's all the same. So shortcomings, Romans 3.23 says that all have sin and come short of the glory of God. Shortcoming is literally in the verse. They have come short. They've failed to meet a particular standard. Mm-hmm. And that is sin. In the world, many people would think that shortcomings are We're less, just people, so... Yeah. We're just people, and so since that's our base standard, we're not accountable for shortcomings. Mm-hmm. It's almost like shrugging your shoulder and saying, well, well everybody mm-hmm. sins. Of course, everybody sins. At the door, no one has difficulty admitting that they're not perfect. Everyone right. is able to admit that they're not perfect. What they struggle with admitting is that their lack of perfection is an offense to God. So I would say shortcomings and sin are the same thing. Yeah, I thought of, you know, when I think of shortcomings, I think of little things that we, like you said, we just sort of think of them as almost inconsequential, like what's the big deal, you know? And, you know, again, thinking about biblical illustrations, that I thought of Uzzah who, you know, all he did was try to steady the ark when the ark was on the cart and it got shaken. He reaches up and just touches it to try and keep it from falling on the ground, which seems like a small thing or a good thing, and God kills him. I thought of Nadab and Abihu. They just got a coal from the wrong fire. In Leviticus, it says that they should get it off the brazen altar, but they went and got it from some other fire source. And at the first worship service of the tabernacle, God burns these two priestly men to death for something that seems very small from a human standpoint. God says to, to the Israelites in the book of Deuteronomy, that if they go to war, they're supposed to take and put a paddle on their weapon. And when they go and ease themselves abroad, in other words, they they do biologically what you know people do. We eat and we have to do our business afterwards. And God says to them, if they don't cover it up, he's not going to come to the camp and the enemies are going to destroy them. And he's not going to come to the camp, he says, because he's holy. And, you know, it seems like a small thing. A man in Numbers chapter 15, where he's gathering sticks on the Sabbath day, seemingly a small thing, and God commands him to be stoned to death. seems like a small thing, but yet God is so absolutely holy that these small things, these small oopsies, these small transgressions are still transgressions. In fact, there in Numbers chapter 15, it makes a distinguishment between MCG talked about the sin of omission and the sin of commission before. Well, in Numbers chapter 15, it, it mentions two categories of sin, the sin of ignorance And there it says, you know, if people sin through ignorance and then they come to realize it, that they can make a sacrifice, God will forgive them. But then he says if they sin presumptuously, that that soul should be cut off. And two verses later is the man gathering sticks on the Sabbath. And I think through these pictures, God is trying to paint the idea for us that the little things are still a transgression against him because we're imperfect, because, you know, we can't just excuse those imperfections. He's still absolutely holy. Now, every time I think of these little things, I always think of Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah is in the temple and he sees God high and lifted up, and then the angels say, Holy, holy, holy. And then he says, I'm a man of unclean lips amongst a people of unclean lips. And the angel comes down, takes a coal off the altar, 
puts it to his lip and it says that his iniquity is cleansed. And, you know, so just a seemingly small thing of having unclean lips and his lips had to be cleansed because he was in the presence of a holy God. So, you know, what are shortcomings? No matter how we define them, I think it's just a demonstration of our imperfectness, which is a demonstration that we're sinners. So do you think we are splitting hairs here, though? Because can I say that I have shortcomings without the shortcoming necessarily be a sin? This is what I'm thinking about. Let's say I'm driving down the road and I get in an accident. Mm-hmm. Or maybe not even an accident. I do something that violates the laws of traffic unintentionally. And that's just because of the fact that I'm human. I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. Can I say that's what a shortcoming of mine? I would say that's a sin through ignorance. Because if you're driving down the road and you're going too fast, you're violating the law. Whether you realize it or not. And the Bible says that a violation of the law without your knowledge, without you doing it intentionally, is a sin through ignorance, but it's still considered sin. So, yes, God appears to be very forgiving of that kind of sin because it's not a stubborn rebellion, though. It's not, we're not, you know, standing there shaking our fist in his face saying, I will not obey you. Something that happens because of who we are. Sort of like the men that go abroad, you know, and they're in Deuteronomy chapter uh, I don't remember the chapter, but in Deuteronomy, where God tells them to have paddles on their weapons, they, they're going to go and, you know, ease themselves abroad. You know, a woman in the Old Testament would, you know, when she would have her menstruation cycle, she would be considered unclean for some period of time. When she would have a child, she'd be considered unclean. It wasn't that, you know, God, you know, was wrathful and vengeful against that kind of thing. He's vengeful and wrathful against sin, yes, but she could be cleansed from that and he would forgive that because she was willing to come and do you know what god required i'm getting into a broader topic obviously there but we excuse all kinds of things in our life as being small or inconsequential but i think our definition is not the definition we need to be concerned about it's the definition how does the bible define that yeah and i think that is a good segue into our next question because What actually makes a person a sinner? Well, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 19, tells us two things in that passage. One, that because we're descendants from Adam, that we're born sinners. But it also, I think, demonstrates the principle that every man is responsible for his own sin. I see in verse 18, it says, Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. So by Adam's offense, judgment came upon all men. But then it also says in verse number 12, even though death passed upon all men, it says, for that all have sinned. So I think it illustrates both principles, that because we're descendants of Adam, we're born sinners, but at the same time, we're going to be judged for our own sin. Yeah, so definitely, I fully agree with that. I have the same verses, Romans 5, 12, and I also have verse 19, which says, for as by one man's disobedient, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. And of course, I have by birth. We are sinners by birth because we are born in sin and by choice because you and I have chose to sin. And I think that definitely will make us sinners. So let's tie that into shortcomings again. Can I acknowledge that I'm not perfect? Is that enough? Well, when I was considering this part, I was thinking about someone being in a courtroom being tried for murder. You know, would it be sufficient to get you off the hook if you acknowledge that you had murdered someone? Would it be sufficient to get you off the hook if you said you were sorry? Or if you tried to tell the judge, you know, I'm not perfect. I do things that are wrong. And 
you know, of course we look at murder as being like a big bad thing and, you know, you're saying small things and so forth. But the reason that I use that particular illustration is because we think of murder as being so bad and we look at sin and try to look at these little things as being so small. And yet, again, they're, they're offenses against a holy and a righteous God. So, yes, if I acknowledge that I'm not perfect, you know, is that enough? The answer is no, because God's still my judge, and I'm still a sinner, and I've still sinned. Whether they were small sins or big sins, why would the judge of all the earth, who's holy and just and right, and who's not a respecter of any man, judge me just because I try to use the excuse I'm not perfect? Why should he let me out of the courtroom for that? Right. I would say the same thing. We mentioned earlier how when we go from door to door sharing the gospel, most people don't have any problems acknowledging that they're not perfect, but that's because they are comparing themselves to everyone around themselves and everyone around them is not perfect. So they're... Makes them feel better. That seems to be the equalizer. Right. Makes them feel better. And they've just figured, well, I'm just like everyone else. That's the equal starting line. So this isn't that much of a big deal. But again, Romans 7.13 talks about the sin being exceedingly sinful because of the transgression of the law, because of the holiness of God, it says, was then that which is good made death unto me. God forbid, but sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. It's by the knowledge of the law that we know what sin actually is. And so, no, it's not enough to just say, I'm not perfect. We actually just talked to someone, it might come out in a different podcast, but he talked about how when we share the gospel with people, we need to be more clear and we need to be more decisive in communicating what sin is because right now the world has that idea of, well, I'm not perfect and they just shrug their shoulders about it. But the aspect of the law of God, the holiness of God is what's missing. Yeah, definitely. I think about the young rich ruler when he came to Christ and he said in Luke 18 verse 22, now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing, sell all that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have church in heaven, and come, follow me. The reason I'm thinking about it, because talking about acknowledge that you're not perfect. If there's anyone that did acknowledge that he wasn't perfect, was a young rich ruler. You know, he says, hey, all these things I've done for my youth, what lacketh I yet? And Christ didn't tell him, hey, yeah, really? You haven't done anything from your youth? Christ simply attacked that very idol of his heart which would be his riches christ basically said hey go give those to the poor and come follow me and the fact that he couldn't do that something as simple as that show his true heart's desire so acknowledge you're not perfect definite is not enough because i think when the young rich ruler did that christ said hey you're still lacking and that's what kind of come to my mind when i'm thinking about someone being Hey, I'm not perfect. Of course, all of us are not perfect. I remember witnessing to a co-worker and I was trying to explain to him the fact that all of us have sinned. And his response to me was, well, isn't that all of us? Yeah, it's all of us. But at some point in our life, he has to become personal as well. I know there's one guy that said, you know, saying that Jesus Christ died on a cross is history. Saying that Jesus Christ died on a cross for sin is theology. Saying that Jesus Christ died on a cross for my sin, that's salvation. And I think many times the problem is that we don't personalize these things. So we want to say, I'm not perfect, but we don't want to personalize it and say, hey, 
I'm not perfect because I have sinned against a holy and righteous God. Yeah, we want to excuse our imperfections. Like Jay was saying, you know, what we end up doing is comparing ourselves amongst ourselves. And, you know, like I look at Saddam Hussein and I think, well, he was an awful man. He definitely deserved to go to hell. But, you know, I'm not so bad, so I should be allowed to go to heaven because I'm not awful like him. But I've still sinned against a holy and a righteous God. And I can try and, you know, excuse those things and try and marginalize them and make them small. But I can't get around the fact that I've sinned against a holy and a righteous God. Yeah, definitely. I remember going door to door. And this was when Jen and I were newly married. And we went to knock on this door. And this lady answered the door. And she gave profession of faith. And I think she was saved. But her husband started to basically get into conversation and while his wife was already going to another church and said that she was really glad that we were here but she and her daughter was going to another church the husband kind of get in a stat saying hey i'm looking for a church i want to go to a church that the people are not hypocrites and all this stuff and i remember saying to him well if you're looking for a church where people are perfect well, don't come to my church because I can tell you that there are people there that are not perfect and there are people there that are hypocrites and I am one of them. And I think he was doing that more to annoy his wife. She was telling us some of the stuff that he was doing, like coming home drunk and all that stuff, which is maybe another discussion for another podcast. But I think he was more saying that to annoy his wife. But the thing that popped out, he was basically happy on her right. imperfections. And said, oh, well, this and that and whatever. And you now looking at me as a stranger, say, hey, I want to come to your church. And I think his demeanor changed when I told him, hey, I'm a hypocrite just like your wife. You know, I remember our pastor was saying that in some oh, way, yeah. all of us are hypocrites. None of us are consistent in the way that we all should be. But is that imperfection sin? I definitely think it is because of sin in our life, why we have these imperfections. And it's because of sin why we're not consistent in things that we should be consistent in. When I was considering this particular point, I thought of the fact that some people might respond and say, well, you know, that's not fair to treat, you know, somebody who's awful as, you know, the same as me or me, the same as them and so forth. But that's actually the perfect definition of fairness, treating everyone according to the same standard. You yeah, know, definitely. Romans 3.19 now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and that all the world may become guilty before God. And I was talking with somebody one time, and I shared that idea that's perfectly fair and reasonable, because we've all violated God's law, and he's treating us all fairly. Outside of Christ, he's going to judge us all according to the same standard. This one fellow said to me, well, what about love? Doesn't God love man? And I said, of course, but if a human judge, let's say he's the defendant's father, I asked the, the fellow, I said, can he let somebody off because he loves them? <laughs> and why would the rules be different for the God of the universe, who's the judge of all the earth, who's going to judge the earth in righteousness? If a human judge couldn't do that because of love, why could the creator of the universe? And then I said to this man, I said, in fact, God does love man. But whereas his, you know, God's holiness is shown from the opening chapters of Genesis 
his love isn't specifically spoken of to man or regarding man into the book of Deuteronomy. I think that's interesting. And I said, but he does love man, and that's why he sent the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the the judge, capital J, judge, couldn't overlook man's sin, so he took man's sin for man. And that's what the Bible tells us, that the Lord Jesus Christ became sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so because the judge couldn't overlook it because of love, he took it upon himself. So really the only unfair part in all of that is the fact that God died for us. That's the only unfair part. So we have looked at sin, we have looked at the definition of sin and shortcomings and whether or not we should acknowledge that we are not perfect. What about personal responsibility? What is personal responsibility? By virtue of the definition of the words, it means that we are responsible individually and personally, of course. But I look at it from a biblical standpoint, you know, it's it's sort of like gravity, it's an unalterable fact. You know, again, to use the murder illustration, you know, if I killed somebody that makes me a murderer, I'm personally responsible for the death of that person. Whether I've been caught or not, that doesn't change the fact that I am personally responsible. You know, as we've established, every person is a sinner because of Adam's sin, also because of our own personal choice to sin. And so because that's been a choice that we've made, we're going to be judged for that according to God's law. And so if any of us go to hell, it won't be because you know, we won't be able to blame Adam or anybody else. We'll only be able to blame ourselves. So personal responsibility is seeing that it's my sin, not just somebody else's sin, but I'm a sinner and my sin. That's personal responsibility, seeing that fact. Yeah, so when I think about it, I think about Nathan mm-hmm. confronting David uh, and saying, Thou yeah. the man, pointing to him personally. I think of Achan and his sin by stealing the spoil when he hid it in the middle of his tent and the suffering that the Israelites went through because of it, when God actually pointed Joshua to the man, he had to take personal responsibility and mm-hmm. God judged him. I think of even First Corinthians 13 and verse 11. He said, when I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I taught as a child. But when I became a man, I put it with childish things. When I think of that is that personal responsibility also a sign mm-hmm. of maturity. You know, children don't usually get up and say, I'm going to take my responsibility for what I do. Babies, especially, are Mm -hmm. inherently selfish. Personal responsibility has to do with the humility of ownership of your sin and the maturity Mm -hmm. to own your sin, your mistakes, your shortcomings, whatever those may be. I think even Jonah, personal responsibility there, he had to take personal responsibility for the fact that he disobeyed God. And I mentioned David already, but David in Psalms 51 and verse 3 and 4 said, For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this wickedness in thy sight. So David acknowledged, even though he sinned against and with Bathsheba, 
he acknowledged that he was my transgression, my sins, and I have sinned and done this weakness in thy sight. And I think it's when you can actually look in the mirror and said, hey, yes, I was born in sin, but I also chose to sin. I also violated the laws of God. It's also coming to the realization when someone look at you and say, thou art the man that's like mm-hmm. Nathan did with David, that you can yeah. acknowledge, yes, I have sinned. I am the person who is guilty before yeah, God. When you mentioned Bacon there, I thought of the Valley of Achor, which means the Valley of Trouble. And in Isaiah, I can't remember the chapter, God says to the nation of Israel that he's given them the Valley of Achor for a door of hope. And what he's telling them there is that if they'll only acknowledge their sin and turn from it, he'll be merciful to them. So that's personal responsibility. Another aspect of personal responsibility is personal accountability. We are accountable to God for who and what we are because the Bible teaches us that God created everything for his own glory. And so if you were created for that purpose and you aren't fulfilling that purpose, you're accountable to God for that. I think we understand this on a human level. If I created, say, a clock and one of the cogs in the inner machinery of the clock is malfunctioning, as the clock's maker, I'm going to go in there and straighten that cog out or remove it and replace it with one that actually works. If a commander has a service member in his command that is either unwilling or incompetent to do his job in the position that he's in, he's going to take him out and replace him with someone else or same thing for a boss. So in the same way, God, the creator created us for his glory Our purpose is to glorify him. In that same way, we are accountable to him. And for example, Revelation 4.11 says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they were all created. Romans 11.36 says, For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Proverbs 16, verse 4 says, The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. I also think of Isaiah 45, verse 9, that says, Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, What makest thou? Or of thy work he hath no hands. Woe unto him who saith unto his father, What begettest thou? Or to the woman, What hast thou brought forth? Because we are accountable to God in that way, I think that ties into personal responsibility as well. I agree with what you just said. I think that was very good. I had to keep myself from amening in the middle of it and saying, Preach! (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) All right, still to come, we will be talking about why we need to acknowledge our sins. Why does God need to judge sin and more? We will be right back. Sometimes, no matter how great the selection, you just can't find exactly what you want. Design It Yourself custom gift baskets solve that problem by allowing you to choose the specific products you want to include with your unique gift basket. 
And in addition to hand selecting the products, you can further personalize your custom basket by adding coffee mugs, stuffed animals, mylar balloons, or even an imprinted ribbon. When you're done, we'll put it all together in a one-of-a-kind perfect basket and ship or hand deliver it directly to your lucky recipient. Click in the description section to design your basket today. So the next question to ask in light of everything we've asked so far is why do I need to acknowledge my shortcomings as sin? This might be similar to the question about I can acknowledge that I'm not perfect. Isn't that enough? But perhaps there's another way to look at it. Why do I need to, why does anyone need to acknowledge their shortcoming as sin? Well, I thought of, this isn't a Bible verse, but I thought of an illustration that I've used sometimes with talking to people about the idea of confession. You know, if I walk into a police station and I say, you know, I did it, they're going to say, okay, what'd you do? I'm guilty. I'm totally guilty. Okay, well, what did you do? Hey, I'm telling you, I did the crime. I'm guilty. You should put the handcuffs on me, put me in prison. Okay, well, what did you do? I haven't actually confessed or acknowledged what I've done in order to make it right, in order to be held accountable for it, etc. until I actually acknowledge what it is. So this idea of confession of the Bible is the definition literally means to agree with God. And, you know, yeah. I, in Acts chapter 20, it says there that Paul preached repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul preached in Acts chapter 17 and said, God hath commanded all men everywhere to repent. The Lord Jesus Christ said to some folks one time, you would not repent that you might believe. So the reason that I would need to acknowledge my shortcomings, the reason I would need to acknowledge my sinfulness is simply because I can't actually reach out and receive the Lord Jesus Christ until I do that. Because until then, I don't see myself needing a Savior. You know, if you're drowning in a lake and you don't care that you're drowning, then why do you need anybody to save you? Yeah, I was going to say some of the same things that you just said. You know, if you don't acknowledge it, you will never come to a place where you see a need for a savior. And that's... I mean, that's why the nation of Israel is still in blindness right now, because they don't see themselves that way. They're right. They don't see that Christ. They must have that they're looking for already come. You know, have acknowledged that yet. John the Baptist said to them that they think they have Abraham for their fathers. I've talked and listened to some testimonies from Jewish folk, and they think that they're going to go to heaven because they're descendants of Abraham. It has nothing to do with sinfulness or not sinfulness. They think only under the worst cases would a Jew, it would have to be an extreme case, would a Jew actually go to hell? I'm not trying to get into to Jewish apologetics here or anything this evening, but I'm just saying that the thing that I find the most difficult in talking to certain folks, certain you know groups of folks, and it's not just Jewish people, it's atheists, it's all kinds of other people, is, is actually you know bringing them to that point, because until they see that, what do they need to be saved from? I remember being in the nation's capital, I think at least 11 years ago, maybe even 12, 13 years ago, and the metro system, there was a billboard or a sign on the wall, and it says, basically, the sign was saying, you can be good without God. And that basic idea that you can be moral, you can be acceptable without God. In other words, there's no need for you to acknowledge your shortcomings as sin, because if you're just like everyone else, like we were going back to the improper definition of shortcoming, if you're just like everyone else, it's not that big of a deal. Without acknowledging shortcomings as sin, salvation is impossible. Why does sin exist in that sense? So we have to acknowledge our sin and our shortcomings, but why does sin exist in the first place? In 
Romans 5.12 again, it says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world. I had never stopped and thought about it until I was looking at it in preparation for this. It doesn't say that sin started right then. It says sin entered into the world then. And so I had to go back to Ezekiel 28 and 14 where it talks about Lucifer's sin. You know, he sinned in heaven. But I'm reasoning through this thing, and I've asked myself the question, did God create sin? And that's a pretty big topic in and of itself, I suppose. But I basically answered it by asking myself a couple of other questions, like did God create Satan? Or did Lucifer become Satan? You know, God created Lucifer. He's not mentioned as Satan until after his fall. I looked at it as like sin, like cold or darkness. Cold is not something that we measure. It's actually the absence of something. It's the absence of heat. Darkness is not something that we, that is actually a thing. It's the absence of something. But I had to catch myself, though, because I was reasoning out, you know, sin being the absence of righteousness, which is true in one sense. But it actually says that sin entered the world, so it's actually a thing. So the only answer I could come up with was that sin exists because God's creatures rebelled against him. They rose up, they formed a coup, they broke his law. So if that had not happened, sin would not exist. So sin exists because God's creatures rebelled against him. So let's tie this in. God's creatures rebel against him, that's why sin exists. But then we will say God is all-powerful. So why does God allow sin then? That's a question I think that people try to answer philosophically, oftentimes rather than biblically. You know, I've talked this particular subject through with numerous people, and I rarely get any sort of Bible answer. They start saying things like, God loves and he wanted fellowship, didn't want to force people. You know, there's some biblical-esque ideas in there and so forth, and maybe even there's some Bible texts that might, you know, prove those exact things or whatever. But as I was reasoning this out, I thought, you know, I had a little bit of trouble coming up with a Bible answer, to be honest with you, until I considered Romans chapter 9. There's other passages too, but in Romans chapter 9, verses 22 through 26, I think it gives three reasons for why God allows sin. In verse 22, it says that he allows sin to show his wrath. And in verse 23, it says he allows sin to show his mercy. And in verses 24 through 26, it says that he allows sin because of his love. And you say, well, how's that loving? Well, there are different types of Bible love. There's eros, philios, and agapeo, but I don't speak Greek. I speak English. So I started looking for these, you know, how the Bible defines love. And I looked at the fact it says that Ammon loved Tamar, but yet he forced her. That doesn't seem very loving to me, if you want to put it in those terms. And Jesus is talking to Peter on the shore in John chapter 20, and he says, Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. So he asks him, based on his love, to make a choice. And he says to his disciples, if you love me, keep my commandments. So again, a choice. And you know, I could go on probably, this is a huge topic in and of itself too, but so that philosophical answer that I sort of started off with saying, you know, a lot of people just say that you know, the reason God allows sin is because he loves man and he doesn't want to force man because then it wouldn't be love, actually turns out to be pretty biblical. He allowed it because he loves man, because he wants that relationship with man to be a, a relationship of choice, not one of force. And But he also, to go back to those previous two points though, he also allows it to glorify himself in the wrath that would be poured out. I, I know that sounds awful in one sense, but again, because he doesn't force these people to love him, because it wouldn't be love, then 
he has to pour out his wrath because of his holiness. It's actually a great mercy, I think, that God allows sin in light of those things. We are so full of ourselves and we think so highly of ourselves. We wouldn't even acknowledge the sin that is in us, much less our capacity or the extent to which we can sin if it weren't for God allowing sin to exist, if that makes any sense. Like, for example, sometimes we look at the news and we see something absolutely terrible happening and we tend to think, oh, you know, that person, what they did was terrible. What happened there was terrible, but we never think about it in light of, oh man, that's terrible. That could be me. We look at Hitler and think he's like this terrible person, which he was, but we never acknowledge that it can possibly, we can be just as evil. And it's just us bucking against the reality that we are not God, basically, we're not holy and good and perfect and righteous as God is. So when you went through Romans 9, 22 through 26, I know it sounds almost counterintuitive to say that, but it's a great mercy that God allows us to see his love, to make known the way he wants to make known his mercy. And yes, his wrath as well, because we know that God wants to save us from his wrath. We wouldn't even understand what that was or why that's so significant. Exactly. Like I was talking to my sister and she pointed out how, I can't remember if she was at the door or something, but someone made some complaint about God being so harsh on Adam and Eve, banishing them out of the garden because of, you know, biting into a fruit. And my sister actually countered and said, actually, that's very merciful because had they reached out and eaten from the tree of life after having eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would not, we're not going to go down this trail, this might be a rabbit trail, but there might not have been a possibility for them to have been saved. They would have lived forever. They would have lived forever in their sin, completely reprobate. So it's actually God's great mercy. And I, I love what you said before, DW, way back when, when we were talking about where fairness actually lay, the real injustice, the real unfairness is God having to die for sinners. That's where the real injustice is. That's very true and very much the same thing. Yeah, definitely. So if God allows sin, why does God then now have to judge sin? Well, because, I mean, in short, we've mentioned it a couple of times, actually, because he's absolutely holy. He, he's not a little holy. You know, the Bible says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He is absolutely holy. In Isaiah chapter 6, you know, where Isaiah sees him high and lifted up, and the seraphim there are crying, holy, holy, holy. The word seraphim literally means burning ones. Whenever you see fire in Scripture, it has to do with God's judgment, his holiness. And so the reason these angels, it calls them in Revelation, it says the angels are holy. The reason, though, that that they are burning up is because they are in the very presence of the absolute holy God. And he is so holy that they have to cover their face. They can't even look on him. He is so holy that they can't uh, stand in his presence. They actually cover their feet, the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 6. So even though they are holy angels, God is so much more holy than they are, that they are just literally burning up in holiness. And so, you know, God is infinitely holy. You know, we can't really understand God's attributes except in a negative term. Like we say, God's infinite. Uh, He's without boundaries. 
He is eternal. He is without end. He is holy. He is without fault. You know, we, we can only understand these things in those terms because otherwise we can't understand the magnitude of God. And so the reason he has to judge sin is because he is infinitely holy. You know, he is so holy that he can't look upon sin. So how could sin dwell in his presence in heaven? And since it can't, but yet he loves man, you know, he's making that provision. But the reason that he has to judge sin is because he is absolutely holy. Would you say that's the same reason why you have to judge my sin? Well, the reason he has to judge my sin, that's part of the reason. But the other reason that he has to judge my sin is because if he didn't judge my sin, but he judged everybody else's sin, he would be a respecter of persons. He wouldn't be fair and completely just. And so, yes and no. I mean, it's related, but he has to be a fair and equitable judge. And in order for that to happen, he has to judge everybody on the same plane. He can't judge one person differently than another. Otherwise, he is not holy and fair and just. Yeah. I just want to make a quick note here about how D.W. was talking about the holiness of God. And I was just thinking of the sun, our sun. That thing is 93 million miles away, and it's still able to burn us or to damage life here on Earth just by mere exposure to it. And the closer you get to it, the less likely life is able to, it just incinerates everything that comes near it. That's the closest thing we have in creation to understanding the holiness of God. The Bible talks about how creation points to the reality of God. It's general revelation meant to point to what God is like so that we could haphazardly feel for what God is like, apart from, of course, special revelation. I was just thinking of the sun, how it completely burns, it incinerates everything that approach, even begins to approach it, is a picture of oh, the yeah. holiness of God. Not a perfect picture, sure. of course, but just a picture of it. In Revelation chapter 20, when God shows up at the great white throne judgment, it says the heavens and the earth fled away. And in Malachi and in a couple of other places in the Bible, and Peter talks about the elements themselves will melt with fervent heat. I think these are the same events. When he shows up in Revelation chapter 20, he is so holy that the universe that is tainted with sin just burns up into nothing. And it says in 1 John that when we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. When we see him in his holiness, everything in us that was impure is just burned, burned away. Wow. And the only thing that's left is what's him. So... You know, he is so holy. I mean, that's why your illustration with the sun there is just such a powerful illustration, because if you go flying into the sun, you're going to be nothing. The sun's going to win. <laughs> right. Right. That actually answers the next question where it says, you know, I can work on my shortcomings and improve. Why do I need God's forgiveness or help? Why would God get the credit for bringing about any change? I think the answer to that question oh, yeah. ties into what we're talking about right now. You and your sinfulness, you can't bring about that kind of holiness. It has to come from God. Anything less than that mm -hmm. will be burnt to a crisp. Yeah, I fully agree with that. I think that, of course, talking back to the holiness of God and we can't truly comprehend the holiness of God, but D.W. mentioned Isaiah, but when he saw the holiness of God, he actually saw for the first time, well, I don't know if it was for the first time, but he then saw that the fact that he's exceedingly mm -hmm. sinful. I think it's interesting. Isaiah here, he's in the temple. So he's clearly of the priestly line. And if you look at some other biblical evidence, it looks like Isaiah is actually related to Uzziah. So he's actually got royal blood in him. So he is of the royal lineage, and he's also the priestly lineage, 
and yet he himself is still sinful, which you know ties back into wow. can't we excuse our little imperfections? Well, if somebody who's priestly and of royal lineage can't excuse their imperfections, then who am I? <laughs> we sure can't, right? So do you think it is still sin if it doesn't hurt anybody? Well, it's still a violation of God's law. Yes, I might do something against a person. I might lie to somebody or whatever, but I'm still violating God's law. So, you know, yes, it's still sin because it's still a violation of God's law. What would you say the difference is between temptation and sin? We've talked about shortcomings. What about some people have this question in their mind? Well, is every time I'm tempted, is that sin? I mean, what's the difference between temptation and sin then? God does not tempt anyone. God does offer tests. We see that in Genesis when with Abraham and Isaac, where God tested Abraham with his only son, which was then a picture of Christ. You know, Abraham at least was able to save his son, but God provided a lamb. So God tested Abraham. He didn't tempt him. So if you're tempted to sin, it's not of God. Of course, the temptation in of itself is not sin. But if you heed to the temptation, then it is sin. Yeah. And of course, I'm also thinking about that verse in 1 Corinthians where... Talking about 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. There has no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted of that ye are able, but will, with the temptation, also make a way of escape that ye may be able to bear it. So yeah, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that you just quoted, DW, that tells me that it's not only that God does not tempt you to sin, God may provide testing, but God doesn't tempt you to sin. But when you are tempted, God also will create a way out. You always will have a way out. And if you don't take that way out, it's because of your loss. I remember at the door, I don't remember, Jay, but you, was, you and I at the door, mm-hmm. and you were talking to this guy, and he was constantly saying, yes, I try, I try, but then the devil come in and he tempt me and I fall. And he keep on saying that, and I remember butting in and says, you know, sir, the Bible teaches me that when I sin, when I give in to temptation, it's because of my own loss. And I remember when I said that to him, he closed the door in our face. Yeah. But it was the truth, and I didn't say it in a manner that to be mean to him. I said it in a manner to show him that you're blaming the devil for what you're doing, but the Bible says it's actually your loss and your entice that actually caused you to sin. And I think that's very important for folks to understand because, again, talking about personal responsibility, if you're given into that temptation, it's not God. It's not the devil. It's you, your sinful yeah. heart, your sinful yeah. desire, your sinful lust. And that's why Jesus said it's what comes out of the heart of man that defileth a man. Matthew five twenty eight. he says, if you look on a woman so as to lust after her, you've committed adultery already with her in your heart. He wasn't saying that looking on the woman was sin, but he said looking on her to lust after her was sin. That's why Job said in Job 31, 1, I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think on a maid? You know, sometimes we can't help the things that we see, but we can certainly help the things that we think on. When you mentioned that, what come to my mind is because if you go back to the Old Testament, the Bible talk about in the command, thou shall not commit adultery. And that's a physical act. The Bible says thou shall not commit adultery. But when you go to the New Testament, Jesus take it even a lot further than that. Because one can say, okay, have you ever committed adultery? You can say no. But then you can look and say, okay, have you looked at a woman with loss? The Bible says that's the same. 
in the Old Testament, the Bible said, thou shalt not kill. You might not never kill anybody, but if you look on your brother or fellow human being with hatred, the Bible says that is equated to murder. So the action was judged in the Old Testament, given the heart is now being judged along with action in the New Testament. That's how important the heart is as well. And if that heart is tempted or drawn away by his own loss, it's not God. And I'm going to say again, it's not the devil. It's, it's you. you. It's mm -hmm. personal responsibility is on you. Every man is drawn away of his own lusts. Yep. And the reason we know temptation in and of itself is not sin is because Hebrews 4.15 says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted, like as we are yet without sin. So we know temptation and sin are not the same. And we see, you know, Christ's temptations in Matthew 4, Luke chapter 4, where the devil comes and tempts him and so forth. And he answers with the word of God. So in 1 John 2.16, it says that for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And those are the three areas in which we're tempted. I heard somebody one time say that as far as this whole matter of temptation versus sin, he said, you might not be able to help if a bird lands on your head, but you can keep it from building a nest there. If it's a violation of God's law, even if it doesn't hurt anyone, and we talked about the holiness of God. We made a correlation to the intensity of the sun. We talked about the extreme holiness of God. Well, then how can any man escape the penalty of sin then? Because we are all sinners. How is it possible to escape that penalty? And tack on to that, how can God be just and still forgive? Right. Those sin? two are definitely related. Yeah. How can God be just in justifying the ungodly? Yep. John the Baptist said to the religious rulers that came to his baptism, he said, you know, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You know, the answer to that is is to flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, John one twelve says, but as many as received him, not communion, not church membership, not being a deacon, but as many as received him, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. To the point of how can a just God be just in justifying the ungodly? And Isaiah 53.11 actually answers that question. And I think it's very interesting because Isaiah 53.11 was written some, I think, 400 years before the Lord Jesus Christ. And God the Father there says, He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. You know, how God can be just in justifying the ungodly is because his son died on the cross. When God the Father looked forward, even from the point of Isaiah 53, 11, 400 years into the future and saw his son on the cross dying, he said, I'm satisfied. So before I was ever born, before I ever sinned, God said, I'm satisfied. But only if I'm in Christ, only if I've received him. And so we've talked through lots of stuff in this episode, and we've talked about the fact that there's personal responsibility. It's not just enough. You said it yourself, MCG, that, you know, it's not just enough to say Jesus Christ came and died. It's history. There are secular historians that document the fact that Jesus Christ of Nazareth came and he actually was crucified on the cross outside of Jerusalem. That's history. It's theology to say that he died for sin. You know, John says that he died for the sins of the whole world. That's theology. But to say that he died for my sin, to take that personal responsibility and say, first of all, in order to say that he died for my sins, I have to acknowledge that I'm a sinner. 
And, you know, so to see that God's word is right about his law and I am wrong. I'm the offender. He's right. That's what happened to me on November 9th, 2008, when I cried out to the Lord and I asked him to save me. Is I was sitting in my room and when I read Romans 10, 9 and saw the deity of Christ, you know, thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. I got hung up on that phrase. I sometimes tell people that's the night that God arrested me, threw me on the ground, put some handcuffs on me. Because I suddenly realized, I was suddenly flushed out like a cockroach into the light of God's holiness. And I realized the reason I was lost and I was going to go to hell was because I was God's enemy. But not because he wanted to be my enemy, but because I would not have God to rule over me. That's the whole point in the people that go through the millennial reign of Christ. And then afterwards, they still rebel against him. Because it's not about going to heaven for them. It's about the fact that they will not have God to rule over them. They won't acknowledge their own personal sinfulness. They won't, you know, they stubbornly resist. And so that night, November 9th, 2008, you know, I suddenly saw my sinfulness before God and I fell apart and I turned to him and I cried out to him and he graciously saved me for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So how can God be just in justifying the ungodly? It's because his son died to pay for my sin and for the sins of the whole world. He was God so he could pay for every man's sin. And he was man so that he could pay for man's sin. And being the just one and the perfect one, he was able to do that. And God said, I am satisfied with that. And so if, if I don't let him pay for my sin, I've got to pay for it forever in a place called hell. Because the offense is toward an infinite God. The penalty is an infinite penalty. That's eternal. If I don't allow him to pay it for me, if I resist, then I'm going to pay it myself forever in hell. But if I will let him pay it for me, and he did, and I receive him, then I have life. And that's how God can be just in justifying the ungodly. He takes the perfect account of his son and he places it on my account. And he takes my awful account and he placed it on his son. And that's how God can be just in justifying the ungodly because the wages of sin is death. And Jesus Christ paid that by dying for me and being raised again the third day. Thank you for listening. To get a hold of us or to support this podcast, go to anchor.fm forward slash removing barriers. This has been the Removing Barriers podcast. We attempted to remove barriers so that we all can have a clear view of the cross.